Welcome to another episode of Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Carty, and I'm here with our other two reporters, Doug Chartier and Jessica Foker. Also joining us is assignment editor Jess Brofsky-Eker, who's the newest member of Law Week's editorial team. We're here to talk about our perspectives on covering the year of news in 2019. I should note that at the time of this episode's release, Doug is no longer with the paper and we'll all miss him, but I'm glad he was able to join us for this episode before he left. This, this sort of story stuck out to me when I think back on uh, the past year, really the past year and a half. Uh, not because it was the biggest thing that happened that I uh, covered during the legislative session, but just one of the more interesting things that's kind of a microcosm of what happens when you have a bipartisan-supported project that a lot of people agree would be a good thing to have, or at least the people that I talk to, but it just gets stuck in the weeds. And so I, I like that story because it was sort of a rare chance to indulge a human interest sensibility that I have. In our beat, we don't usually, we don't get to talk to clients very often. So when we're talking to lawyers, they're kind of at a, at a remove sometimes from the emotional core or like the underlying story in a way. That's all coming up on this episode of Hearsay. To start us off, let's hear from Jessica Foker. She joined our editorial team as a reporter in June after spending several years as an editor in Beijing. And the In the Weeds legal news coverage we do has been new for her. And Jessica, you've been with us for about six months now. I think we can all relate to the fish-out-of-water feeling of adapting to Law Week's pretty specific brand of coverage. So just tell us about what that's been like for you. Well, I remember after a week on the job, I wrote a little bit about how covering the law was a little bit like writing and reading a foreign language. After about half a year, I would say it's now a language that I have some a basic command over, not fluent by any means, but you know, I'm not having to look up every fifth word or having to Google every sentence I write to make sure it it makes sense. So that's progress. But I, I think a lot of it is still a, a sort of translation. Where do you find the balance between uh, legalese and layman's terms and what does our audience appreciate? I tend to err towards, you know, layman's terms because uh, I think that's more interesting to read. No, I think that's a really good instinct. And and like I said, I think it's a feeling we all know pretty well. I mean, I've been here for two and a half years, and I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm just starting to get good at my job. So it's definitely not something that is a distant memory for me. So I mean, this year felt like a big year for just news developments in a lot of different areas, although I guess we could say that every year. I think we all have some different thoughts about the most compelling stories that we each covered, whether the stories were weird or really hard to cover because they were tough to source, um, or just we felt like they had a really interesting human angle to them. I kind of want to hear from everybody just about what we thought was the most compelling this past year. So Doug, you wrote a few stories on a pilot project for the state to provide guardianship services for people who, for whatever reason can't make legal decisions for themselves and don't have friends or family to step in 
or potentially can't afford to pay for the services themselves. And you found the program has a funding holdup that wasn't just a matter of everybody wants this program, but nobody wants to pay for it. It sounds like the whole process also to create this pilot program was like a bill that created a commission to create a pilot project to eventually create the Office of Public Guardianship. So tell us about this game of telephone you basically found following this trail in your reporting. This this sort of story stuck out to me when I think back on uh, the past year, really the past year and a half. Uh, not because it was the biggest thing that happened that I uh, covered during the legislative session, but just one of the more interesting things that's kind of a microcosm of what happens when you have a bipartisan-supported project that a lot of people agree would be a good thing to have, or at least the people that I talk to, but it just gets stuck in the weeds in terms of funding, in terms of red tape, things like that. So the Office of Public Guardianship Commission was something that was formed back in 2017 from uh, the Colorado Gen- General Assembly passing a bill. And uh, what that was supposed to do is it, it, it put five people, mostly attorneys, uh, in, into a commission, non-paid, all volunteer, so that they could raise money uh, for a, a state office to provide guardianship services. And what that is, is uh, so that people who are uh, adults who are incapacitated, you know, can't make decisions for themselves. These could be, you know, senior citizens or people with mental or de- uh, developmental disabilities. They may need people to kind of make life decisions on their behalf. And what if they don't have uh, friends or family that can be contacted or, as they say, unbefriended? Uh, those people often, as I'm told, uh, can languish in hospital systems or even, you know, in custody of law enforcement. And that's where a public guardian could step in if the state has a program like that, and several states do. Uh, So uh, there was a uh, pilot project, uh, well, a commission to start the pilot project that was formed, uh, but they first had to raise $1.7 million on their own. And that was under the state's gifts, grants, and donations kind of framework where you had to, you could donate to that but and write the check, but it wasn't refundable. And if they didn't hit that $1.7 million, it would just go into the state's general fund. It wouldn't go toward uh, that program, and the program would never start. So there were a lot of these, uh, just, just kind of looking into that story and how, you know, a lot of time passed and they only raised $2,000. It it just was illustrative of how there was a lot of support. There were apparently, you know, donors and uh, hospital uh, programs that were, you know, willing to throw some support behind this program, but it was just getting stuck in the weeds. And so this past uh, legislative session was just seeing how, what happens when you try to quote unquote fix that with a bill. Just jumping in here to give a little bit more context to what Doug is talking about. In its current form, the pilot project starts by serving at-risk adults in Denver with the intention to expand to the 7th and 16th judicial districts. And the Office of Public Guardianship is due to submit a report to the legislature by 2023 on the program. A bill passed in 2019 did boost the pilot project's funding by raising probate filing fees and budgeting $427,000 from the state's general fund for the 2019-2020 fiscal period. Before these changes were made to the original plan for the office, Doug said organizations were interested in donating, but saw it as too risky because of the state's scheme for gifts, grants, and donations, 
which, as he mentioned a minute ago, meant money raised would go into the state's general fund if the commission didn't meet the $1.7 million target. But Doug said it wasn't ever clear to him what the cutoff date was for getting the money. And if the pilot program's launch keeps getting pushed back, the office won't have the data it needs for the legislative report. Clear as mud, right? And, you know, long story short, there was a bill passed to, you know, provide some funding, but really shrink that program to the point where is it still going to give you that data that uh, the pilot program was supposed to, to, you know, make it for the state to make a decision that uh, an office of public guardianship would be a good thing to expand, you know, statewide. So I think it just touched on so many things just over the course of reporting that. And I wasn't seeing it in other places either. I think part of what specializes us is that we can really get into the weeds for the sake of our audience on kind of the inside baseball of the legislature, the the court system, uh, what it's like to be an attorney and uh, and law in general. And, and and sometimes I would have liked to get more into the the kind of the human impact of you know the importance of according to some of the people I was talking to why public guardianship matters. Yeah, I think that that human element and trying to figure out what more there is to a narrative is something I really came across a lot when I covered prosecution funding, which is something I wrote and did a lot of research on this year. I mean, I spent a lot of time making you guys listening, listen to me talk about it in the newsroom since I did several stories on it. I spent a lot of time this year covering the funding of prosecution offices and the politics that affect it. You know, district attorney offices are funded mainly by the counties they cover, which has created a big resource divide between districts that are funded by wealthy counties and poorer ones. In a lot of instances, that shakes out as a rural-urban divide. And I first turned into the issue last winter at a bill hearing that would have increased state funding of prosecutors' offices Because right now the state pays a big part of the elected district attorney's salary for each of the 22 judicial districts, but that's just about it. And I realized this is an issue with a pretty compelling human interest angle to it. At this bill hearing, the DA for the 6th Judicial District, which is based in La Plata County in southwest Colorado, testified about the problems he has with keeping his office staffed because he just can't pay his prosecutors enough. And I talked to one lawyer who used to work in that district. He was making something like 30% less as a prosecutor there, handling pretty serious domestic violence, felonies, and murders than he made prosecuting misdemeanors and juvenile cases as a prosecutor in Denver early on in his career. And his financial situation, as he told me about, got to the point where he lived in his car for like nine months before he left the 6th District in February. He just couldn't afford rent and his law school loans. But what has made the funding issue really challenging to cover, I think, has been the finger-pointing between prosecutors and public defenders. It's made it a really difficult topic to get my arms around. When I talk to lawyers on both sides for one story, I pretty quickly realized the funding issue is something prosecutors and public defenders don't really find common ground about. Public defenders' offices are funded 
by the state and it's something prosecutors constantly say is an unfair disparity. It gets brought up in bill hearings and my sources brought it up even when I didn't prompt them. And so for one story, I tried to get past all the contentious rhetoric by talking to sources outside Colorado about different circumstances that can influence how effectively prosecutors and public defenders do their jobs, essentially, or fulfill their roles. I thought, okay, prosecutors in Colorado say they struggle because they don't have enough funding, but what are the other moving parts that affect how well their offices function? And as much as, you know, as it turned out, as much as I tried to separate the two angles of public defense and prosecution sources on both sides just kept bringing up how they see their roles tied to how the other side functions. And each side seems to think their responsibilities are more burdensome than what the other side has. I mean, prosecutors and public defenders, I figured out they will argue about what color the sky is. And that animosity made it really difficult to figure out how to cover the funding of prosecutors' offices fairly. Like, if I was trying to figure out along the way, if, you know, if I do a story on the struggle of a rural DA's office to pay its prosecutors enough to keep them, is it also necessary for me to cover how public defenders in the same area are doing financially? And in the end, I decided not every single story necessitates looking at them as two sides of the same coin because for a, for the I think the most recent story I published a, again about a rural district attorney's office I realized that when you stripped away all of the political rhetoric and all this just bickering between the two sides the the financial struggles of this one district especially were still there I mean the fact of the matter was this district was just funded by counties that were too poor to give the office all the resources they need. And, you know, so I talked with our editor, Tony, quite a bit about does public defense need to play a role in the story too because it's not as if public defenders are making just embarrassing amounts of money, right? But um, but I think Tony was reassuring in that sense of just explaining you know, the public defense angle has a place, but that's not your story right now. And, you know, so I think that really kind of helped settle my mind, at least for, you know, the the story at hand. But I think that was probably the hardest thing to get my arms around. Yeah, if I can say something, too, is because, uh, you know, I was there for a lot of these these conversations in the newsroom. Uh, um as this story was developing, Julia, as you were working on this, and it was like, how many different rabbit holes did you see that you could go down, whether it was people suggesting them to you or whether it was questions that came up personally as you were looking at uh, DA's office funding and public defenders and, and, and things of that nature? How, how hard was it to kind of, you know, parse out uh, where you were going to go with the next story? That's a good question. I think one of the the toughest things that influenced that, that I was constantly questioning to make sure I wasn't missing anything, was 
the lack of data out there about the functioning of prosecutors' offices, and I know that's really broad and maybe doesn't explain much. So, for example, if you look at the public defense side, the American Bar Association has guidelines for what a public defense system needs to do to basically meet its constitutional obligations. And there are also different studies out there that have been done about what a public defender's workload should be, for example. And I think the Colorado Office of the Public Defender particularly has done at least one study on salaries and caseloads, and they've done studies that compare the budgets for the different prosecution and public defense offices around the state. But there's really not very much data out there beyond that on prosecution offices. For example, one type of data that I thought at the outset of all this reporting might be reasonable to find was I thought, well, okay, prosecutors are saying they don't have enough funding in Colorado as long as they're funded by the counties. So is there data out there that basically ballparks you know, what an office's budget should be based on, say, their caseloads. And there really isn't information out there like that. I mean, I couldn't even find any numbers nationally. And one prosecutor I talked to, he wasn't in Colorado. I think he was, he's based in South Carolina. He said, well, there aren't any numbers out there about that because we shouldn't be making prosecution decisions based on how much a case is going to cost. I think that's fair, but also I'm not sure that that's a reason for not trying to do any research at all. And I think I think the reason that I initially thought that kind of data might be out there was because something Tony had said about a rural prosecutor he talked to who said, for example, his lack of funding means he probably couldn't afford to try a death penalty case because it would cost his entire year's budget. And so that made me think maybe there were more numbers out there. But on reflection, I'm wondering if that prosecutor just knew that because death cases are so outlandishly expensive to prosecute that he just knew off the bat that that's not something he could afford to do. Jessica, I know you've said in a way that you're still learning the language of being good at legal news reporting, but I think you've done some really interesting stories that have turned out really well. And I personally remember thinking, you know, reading your first stories that it didn't seem like you were totally new at this. I remember you did a really impressive enterprise story on an inmate who I think DU played an instrumental role in getting clemency for. The case about um, Alvin Green is his name, and he was he had been given a life sentence on drug charges. That that's probably the most memorable reporting experience I've had so far. And so he was granted. It wasn't a super timely story. He was granted clemency in I believe 2016 by President Obama, and 
There were there was a team of local lawyers, including several DU law students, and uh, as part of a civil rights clinic, who helped him with that petition. And so I, I like that story because it was sort of a rare chance to indulge a human interest sensibility that I have. In our beat, we don't usually, we don't get to talk to clients very often. So when we're talking to lawyers, they're kind of at a at a remove sometimes from the emotional core or like the underlying story in a way. But when we all, we had a group meeting and, you know, that wasn't the case. There were, there were definitely tears shed during that interview. And they talked a bit about how, I mean, this is an extra legal process. So it's both a rarity, not very, very many lawyers ever get a chance to work on something like this. And also the the procedures that they, they didn't really know what procedures to follow. They had some loose guidelines on how to draft an effective petition, but they didn't really know. So they just kind of told this man's story, um, talked about what kind of person he was, so that hearing that provided, it, it was easier to write than some stories. I thought that was a really, a really cool story, and I could tell... You put a lot of time into it. Let's see. I, I also want to hear from Jess Brovsky Eaker, who started on Law Week staff part-time last summer, and she has already spearheaded a new section for the paper called This Week in History, and it chronicles events in the state's past related very broadly to the legal system, the legislature, and Colorado leadership. I kind of like that I was able to get all those L's in there. <laughs> Jess, you found out through your research for this section that Colorado has some pretty weird history. But first of all, I mean, how did you get the idea for this weekly section about the state's history? Well, I got the idea. My husband's a big history buff. So he frequently just tells me little like facts and tidbits about um, the nation's history. And then sometimes he would tell me random Colorado history facts and I thought, oh, you know, that's really cool and um, that's really interesting and I, I kind of wish there was something like that, but like that covers law and big events that, you know, kind of shaped the state's laws. So I had, had a conversation with Tony and he thought that that would be a cool thing to add and see how it goes. I've, I found some really weird stuff. <laughs> the state has a very interesting past and I think there's, there's a lot of... Um, when I'm doing research, I'll, I'll find something else that's equally as strange. <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of research that. And um, you guys have been really indulgent with me when I randomly <laughs> spout off history facts in the newsroom. It's fun to be in the room. I will admit that when <laughs> random names come up from 1870 or these different anecdotes, it's like, oh, so that's what you're working on this week. This is, I would love to read that. The topics that you found have been really diverse. You know, you found things relating to pieces of Colorado history that I think people might be fairly familiar with, like former Governor Ralph Carr's outspokenness against the internment of Japanese Americans after the attacks on Pearl Harbor, research related to women's suffrage. You've also found some parts of Colorado's past that, like I said, more are kind of the news of the weird. Was there anything you came across that for you 
you just was new to you and just made you realize, wow, I didn't know that. Denver and Auraria were the the first kind of towns that were established in the metropolitan area and they're definite gold rush towns and there was a lot of crazy stuff that happened like you know the the sheriff at the time the city marshal at the time was only the city marshal because he prevented the outright murder of Rocky Mountain News founder um, William Byers (laughs) by a bunch of angry salooners essentially Byers had uncovered um some startling information about some of the locals that attended that saloon on a regular basis. They had killed a man in cold blood and he had done a shocking expose in his newspaper about it that they weren't fans of. So they um, tried to kill him, chased him around town with rifles and then tried to just shoot wildly into the uh, headquarters building in Denver um, until Uh, who was then the town blacksmith, showed up and kind of put a stop to the raid on the building. And he was later rewarded with being the city marshal. It's just kind of weird stuff like that, that you, like you guys were saying, you'd kind of stumble upon other stuff when researching for a completely different story. And it's just, it's one of those things where you find weird history always. Yeah, some of the most interesting stories are the ones that you stumble on, at least that's what a lot of my experience has been. Well, from the early days of the Rocky Mountain News in the Wild West to public guardianship, hopefully this has been an interesting look behind the curtain at some of the most rewarding stories that our reporters got to cover this year. That's it for this episode of Hearsay. For a bonus session of us discussing our advice to lawyers about talking to the press, check out our Patreon page. You can find it by searching Law Week Colorado. I'm Julia Carty, and I'll see you all in February. Until next time.